Good morning. morning. That's good. Okay, so this is what park looks like full. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm a 1045 guy, so some of you may not know me. Uh, my name is Mike Stanislavski. I uh, bear a certain resemblance to one of the band members who's not here right now. That would be Chris. He's my son. And uh, we started attending here about um, two years ago, I want to say. And I have to just say, it, it's a, a privilege to be able to speak this morning. Um, and one thing I want to say about Park, it's a very encouraging place. Um, Matt introduced me as his friend, and I can't tell you how much of an encouragement he's been to me. And that has given me courage to come up here. <laughs> as I don't, I have preached, but not very often. And uh, it should be exciting to hear what I have to say. I'm not really sure what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> I took a lot of notes, but I can't use my notes. Uh, anyway, um, one thing, we're in this Fix Your Eyes on Jesus series. And what, one thing that's pretty cool about this is I am one of four presenters in this series, which is a really neat thing because Fix Your Eyes on Jesus, it's not about this guy, all right, or that guy, or this any one person. I think this uh, people of Park who are going to be looking for a lead pastor, we need to refocus that our eyes have to be fixed on the head of the church, who is Christ himself. And Fix Your Eyes is, is a very good uh, um, title for the series. Matt talked about it in the um, first lesson, or first series, that this was taken actually from um, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, where fix your eyes on Jesus, author and finisher of your faith. That's what we're supposed to do. I, I, I looked up the word for fix your eyes. Uh, the word eyes is not really in there, but it's this idea of fixing your gaze. Here's a little bit of an expanded uh, translation. To view with undivided attention by looking away from every other object. To regard fixedly and earnestly and to see distinctly. And I'm hoping to do that this morning. Um, and, and I like the, uh, the graphic. When I was first shown that, I was like, eh, I guess, but I, I get it. I get it, this is actually very good. Um, glasses, yeah. I got my first pair of glasses when I was in fifth grade. Um, some of you may have gone through that. I, I was probably squinting at the board. You know when you squint and you're nearsighted, you can see just a little bit better? Well, Sister Amia, our teacher, who's about this tall, and uh, she must have seen me squinting, ratted me out to my mom, and there I go to the eye doctor. And in fifth grade, you have to get glasses. It was pretty devastating. I realized then and there, my career in the NFL was over <laughs> because I never saw any football player wearing glasses on the field. I also found out, out crushingly when I went into high school and played football for a couple of years and everybody was twice as big as me. So needless to say, I went to the eye doctor, I got the glasses, turns out I was nearsighted, I could see things up close, but as they would go further away, they're blurry, some of you may have that. And uh, about a week later, I go to the eye doctor again and I get the glasses on and I could see a little bit better in the office, but I remember driving home and sitting in the front seat of the car. I wasn't driving, my mom was driving. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I could read signs that were far away. I could see things clearly. And I was, I've had glasses on my face ever since, except for a brief period when I wore contacts. Then I got married, then I put the glasses back on. But that's, that's another story. But corrective lenses, corrective lenses. And, and I'm going to be 60 this year. 
Um, I can't believe I can say that. I feel pretty good, but 60, so it's, uh, I, I, a lot of things I'm gonna say is actually in retrospect, and that might be helpful because um, I'm already raised two kids. Um, my wife and I, were gonna be married 35 years. Um, we're raising grandchildren, and our, our task is still at hand. Uh, one thing about when you turn 60, you, you get different kind of glasses. Uh, just a year ago, up until a year ago, I could read without my glasses on. Not anymore, so now I'm farsighted. And um, that also brings me to another rem memory, that when I was 23 years old, I got a different lens, a lens to look at life. And it's right here, believe it or not. Just this one book. This might be a big one, I like it but I am totally dedicated to this book. And the thought came to mind, as much as we are wanting to make things plain and simple, especially for people that never heard anything about God, uh, one thing we haven't said is, why are we looking at the Bible? We're looking at the Bible because we believe it is God's word to humankind. It is the word from God. The Bible says that. I'm dedicated to that, and I can tell you that in the past 35 years, this has been a corrective lens for me when I have been uh, too far-sighted and I haven't seen the things right in front of me. These are more, this is more like an active lens because it corrects you as you go. And, and if you're a believer in Christ, I would say you need to be very dedicated to this book. And what I'm gonna speak on today more specifically, is who is Jesus? If we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, we're going to ask the question, who is he? And we're going to look to the scripture for the answer. I took the title for this from Matthew 16. We're going to be looking there. And it's Jesus' question to his disciples. But who do you say that I am? And I'd say that's a good question for all of us today. Whether you've been a Jesus follower for any length of time or whether you're hearing for, about Jesus for the first time, who do you say that I am? And the big thing I want to say is if you really want to know who Jesus is, listen to what God's word is saying about him. And the most important word there is listen, listen. As I thought about this, um, our culture is very distracted, don't you think? We're distracted people. It's not a millennial thing. Not, oh, hold on, I, I just have to just. <laughs> have you ever run into that? How about the guy that walks out into the intersection, realizes he gets a text, and he start texting. The light changes and the horn honks and he looks at them like they did something wrong. How many of you have seen that? We are a very distracted culture. It's hard for us to listen. Uh, information overload is not always good. It could be too much. And so I'm hoping not to give you too much information today, but to keep it really simple and to give you a succinct statement of who Jesus is, who we say that he is.
The passage we're looking at is in uh, Matthew chapter 16. And this is where Jesus, he pushes this question onto his disciples. He's, he's, Jesus is, is fun to watch. He says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What are people saying about me? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They had the right idea. They were looking back into their history as Jews. First and foremost, the Bible is a Jewish book. You need to know that. It's very important. It's about a people that were chosen by God for a specific reason, actually for a few specific reasons. One of them, they would be a witness to the world about the one true God. We're gonna mention something about that later. Second, they would be the keepers of the oracles of God, the scriptures, the Bible itself is the Old Testament is the Hebrew scriptures. And the New Testament is not any less Hebrew because all, the new, all believers were Jews at the time. But it's that context of world history that we're saying that Jesus is described from. And we're gonna to need to know that as we look further into the story. You know, there's various opinions about who Jesus is now. Have you ever thought about them? You might be here and you might have one of these opinions. Some people say Jesus is a great teacher. They like to quote his words. I did that. I did that. Jesus is a great teacher. Others say he's a famous prophet. And he is. And he is, but he's more than that. And others would say a messianic figure. This is getting a little more wispy and probably a little more current. I think this came about more in the time of the 70s when you had Eastern religions uh, coming to the West. And um, I read a book once called Illusions uh, by this guy, I think his name was Bocard. He's also the guy who wrote, wrote Jonathan Livingston Siegel, if uh, some of you older guys might remember that. But the idea was this: these messianic figures would come into the world at times, anointed figures, enlightened people, and would give the world some kind of inspired message. And Jesus is one of them. So that's some things that some people think about Jesus. But that's not what the Bible's talking about. Other people just want him to go away. And this is pretty modern. Um, no scholars actually accept this. They'll say he's a myth. He's a myth. The Jewish people just kind of built this religion around a guy. He may have been a historical figure, but it's a myth. And we want to wipe it and make it go away. But 14 million Christians in the world today will make you say this is a little bit more than a myth. Something has happened. And you may have known that in your own life, that something has happened to you because of Jesus. And if you hear and you don't know Jesus, I'm hoping today that you will hear something that will draw you closer to him, will fascinate you with him, as it did for me. I'm not looking for any kind of immediate response. I'm looking for consideration. Even I would ask for consideration on when I say the Bible is the word of God. People want to treat the Bible the same way as they're trying to treat Jesus. It's a bunch of stories. It's ancient. It's archaic. 
We can do without it. It's full of myths. It has some good things, but I don't really agree with everything. That's really popular. But if it's God's word, you need to accept everything. And Jesus certainly didn't promote just parts of the Bible. So Jesus presses his disciples even further with this one big question. But who do you say that I am? And who do you say that he is? Who do we say that he is? What does it mean to be a Christian, a follower of Christ? And this is where the statement is going to come from, is from this answer that's going to be given. by Simon Peter. You've heard of him quite a bit. He's the guy that says what's on everybody's mind. He's like that eighth grade student in a senior high school youth group. You ever been with one of those? I used to do a lot of youth ministry. I'd love to, we used to keep the uh, junior high, I don't know what you call them now, the, the junior high guys with the high school guys because we had small groups and they made a bigger group. But I liked it because it was more like a family. You know, you had these different components and there was not just this small group. And the older ones would have to nurture the younger ones and then the younger ones would look up to the older ones. And I thought it was a good dynamic. But it was always fun because this is the eighth graders or seventh graders would come in and you'd be in a Bible study and they're asking these questions and they're just saying whatever comes to mind. And there's the senior in high school, fourth in his class, doesn't want to make a wrong answer. He doesn't say a word. I might be wrong. I may ask a stupid question, but these kids are asking it. Peter's kind of like that. He's not a, he's not a high schooler, but he certainly has that kind of enthusiasm. So Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And lastly, he says to them, then he warned the disciples that they should not tell, they should tell no one that he was the Christ. A bit odd. Now there's a lot in that passage, and I'm not going to go into all of it. You guys that are Bible students, you want to hear about Peter and the rock and all this stuff, um, and that's really good to know about. The one thing I do want to point out is where Jesus said, I will build my church and I will give you authority. And I say, Jesus is exhibiting his own authority, which is a big feature to the Gospel of Matthew. You'll remember at the end in Matthew 28, this is all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. And he gives the uh, disciples a charge to go and evangelize, to bring the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, in the beginning of the gospel, people are marveling at Jesus' teacher be teachings because he taught with an authority that was not like the scribes and the Pharisees. As a matter of fact, that would get Jesus in trouble. This episode here is taking place right after a confrontation with the Pharisees. 
And so the disciples watched Jesus perform miracles. They listened to him confront the Pharisees. They listened to him expound on the, on the law like nobody else could. And from there, Peter is making his conclusion from the things that he's seen. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is the core of the message for today. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now again, I don't want to make an assumption that everybody knows what this means. Now for some of you that have been believers for quite some time, you're saying, well, this is so basic. As somebody has said, you can never know the basics too well. And I think we should revisit this, these titles, as we're refocusing our attention on who Jesus really is. Who do you say that I am? Because we can make our Christianity, our Christian walk about something different. We can make it about church activity. We can even make it about Bible study. We can make it about knowledge. It's about knowing Jesus and knowing him for who he really is. So let's unpack that a little bit. You are the Christ. There's one thing that I left out when I was saying, what are impressions of Jesus that we have? Is he a messianic figure? Is he a prophet? Is he a great teacher? Yes, he's all those things. But for some people, like I said, he's a myth. And for other people, maybe this is the only way they've ever heard him, as a swear word. He's nothing. You realize how much of that is in our culture? And do you realize how many people, maybe some of you here today, that's the only way you ever heard about him? It's just a swear word which makes him into nothing. It's very odd. I don't know people swearing by anybody else. That, that needs to be considered. Just like I don't know of any other book that is criticized or analyzed or homogenized or used or abused in the Bible. Just throwing that out there. If you want to know if these things are verifiable and true, Ask why is there so much attention put on them, even by people that don't even know what they're talking about. So you'll hear Jesus' name in a lot of movies. I've, I've seen that. And, and it, to be honest with you, it kind of hurts. It kind of hurts because when we are saying with Peter, you are the Christ, that word Christ, you've probably heard this, is from Christos, which is a Greek word. Yay. Bible, the New Testament's in Greek, so there you have a Greek word, Christus. But it's the Greek word for Mashiach, which is a Hebrew word, which means anointed. Mashiach was the priest. Aaron was, and his sons were anointed as priests. They poured oil on their head and they were anointed, set apart for God's work. You'll remember David was anointed by Samuel as king when he was only a little boy, about 12 years old. An unlikely figure. The one that was previously anointed, Saul, turns out to be a failure. He was the one that the people chose because he was head and shoulders over all the other people. He was handsome and all these other things, all with human qualities 
uh, that should be in a king. But he failed. David was a man after God's own heart. And it would come up later that this Mashiach, or anointed one, or Christ, would be in the line of David, a promised one in Israel's history. And there's a fun little fact for you guys, Bible students, uh, if you want a little extra. This is, this is a sidebar, as, as Matt would say. Uh, in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's a great writer, and he, he does things very purposefully. He does something that we, a lot of times we like to ignore. It's a genealogy. It's like, oh my, don't we just breeze right over to what's in a genealogy? You know what that is? This one begot that one, this one begot that one. Well, he arranges it in such a way that he comes to this final statement that says from Abraham to David, there were 14 generations. And from David to the exile in Babylon, there were 14 generations. And from the exile to Jesus, the Messiah, there are 14 generations. And the only good explanation of this is that he's using 14, which is the number of David's name. The, the Hebrew works this way. You have three letters, and there's uh, 464 comes up to 14. So what he's saying there, right in the beginning of his gospel, he's saying 14 generations, hitting the Jewish mind, David, 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 king, 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 Messiah, the anointed one. And what's so great about this? Well, Israel's without a king at this point. They went off into exile. They have no king. They have no one to rule them. But there is a promise. There is a promise in Jeremiah that there would be one who would come in the line of David. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord of righteousness. I would say we need righteousness today. How many people are crying out for righteousness? I mean, you look at the news, you look at the division in our culture People are angry with each other. You can't talk about politics. I forget about politics. I don't even want to talk about that. I'm going to talk about our king. See, this is the one who's going to rule righteously. And you need righteous judgment. You need to know right from wrong. And you know what? We can't do it. We can't do it. In and of ourselves, we can't see clearly to judge rightfully. We need God. We need God. He's God, and we're not. And that's why we look to the scriptures, and we're looking to outside ourselves for the answer. And the Bible is telling us that Jesus is this anointed figure who will rule and reign with righteousness. You want to see peace on earth? It will come when Jesus rules and reigns in righteousness. The Bible tells us he's returning. This hasn't happened yet, but this is the promise, and he's recognized by Peter as that person. Second thing, the son of the living God. You heard that there. The Lord of righteousness, that's the name of God. Also, in Isaiah 9, 6, it talks about he will be called mighty God. And then we're saying Jesus is the son of God. And he says the son of the living God. And now here I want to park for just a second. 
The living God. Why is he saying the living God? Because we're not talking about a God among many. And matter of fact, in Israel's history, what made them unique is that they were chosen by the living God. The God who created everything. And that might cause us to recoil a little bit. What do you mean he created everything? That's exactly what the Bible says. That's the first seven words in the Bible. It's seven words in Hebrew, 12 in English. But if seven words is a complete statement and it should make us pause and say, who is this God? But let me tell you something even further. This God who commanded light to come into being and commanded everything to come into being, and it was. Let there be light, and it was, and he saw it was good. And he commands everything by the act of his voice, commands things to come into being. He creates the pinnacle, humankind. We're created in his image and likeness. This is what the Bible tells us. There's something reflective of God in us, and that's why every human being is valuable, created in God's image and likeness. But in our time, we're kind of returning the favor we're starting to perceive God like us, and he's not like us. So we make him jealous, we make him into a tyrant, we make him petty, we'll even say things, who does he think he is, does he think he's God? Yes, he is, that's the point. And he's outside of us. He's not in the created order. He's running it, but he's beyond that. He's beyond our comprehension. So everything that you have in the Bible that is describing God, that we need to know about him, is given to us by analogy so that we can understand him from our created realm because he loves us and he cares for us. And this plan of salvation in Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, is not plan B. It's the plan. It's the plan. And there's something that Peter doesn't get. You'll see here, Jesus' commendation of Peter's confession. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter had insight from outside himself. He said it right. He said Jesus is the Christ, and he's the Son of the living God. Immediately after this episode, Jesus starts telling his disciples what's going to happen. He says, remember he said, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. And then he says I'm, he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be crucified. Peter, who scored high marks with this great confession and was accommodated with a new name, comes up to Jesus and says, look, Lord, this is not a good plan. This is not going to go well for us at all. And he tries to stop him. You know what Jesus does? He says, get behind me, Satan. Well, that must have rocked Peter to his core. Satan is just a Hebrew word. It's actually Satan and Satan in Hebrew. It means adversary. And Jesus is telling him, you're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of man. And so there was something he didn't get about Jesus, but he would get it later after the resurrection. One thing that convinced me about this plan of, uh, of salvation in Christ when I heard about it, the simplicity that a child would get. But as an adult, you go, that can't be that simple. It can't be. 
He pays my price, and I come to him and believe and ask for forgiveness, and I'm in? I go to heaven? It's secure? It's done? I thought about that for five years. I was 18 when I heard it. And I was 23 when I finally came to this crisis point. Crisis is the Greek word, crisis in English. It's the point of decision. Maybe some of you remember that in your life. There was a time when I didn't know Jesus. I, I talked about him. I quoted him. I stole his words, but I held him at an arm's distance. I said, yeah, yeah, we could, we could talk about you, but and I could talk about And I came to the point I realized I wasn't part of him. I knew people that knew him, and I saw something different in their life. There was something they had that I, did, I didn't have, and I knew who it was. And I was in a service, something simple like this, and I heard the voice, Jesus saying, come on, commit, come follow me, I'll take you through. And I don't know if you ever had this kind of experience, but I heard the two little voices, a whiny, squealy little, and this was my last stronghold, don't do it. It's a brainwashing. And I realized at that point, I thought I had everything figured out. I thought I could figure my way out of anything. At 23 years old, I was looking for ultimate purpose. I was even using God's word, and I thought I could figure it out. I could live any way I want, and I could figure it out. And then all of a sudden, it just got so complicated, I couldn't figure it out. And there was only one person I could go to who knew me better than I know myself, and that was God himself. And I was willing to say, okay, I'm in. I don't understand it all, but I'm in. I'll commit. I'll follow you. I don't, I don't understand how it works. It's so simple. And that was the point that got, this has to be from God, because no man would ever think this way. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 53, there's an enigma, an enigma for the Jewish people. It's this suffering servant. It actually starts in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. That's talking about Jesus. And until Jesus came on the scene and until he went to the cross, this remained an enigma. We look at it now and we go, oh yeah, that's Jesus let's back up a little bit we don't have the answers Matt said it earlier we need an answer from outside ourselves this is why we're looking to Jesus he's the son of God he's the anointed one he's the plan and his death on the cross makes him our savior something that Peter wouldn't understand until after the resurrection he paid the price for us so that we can come to God in his righteousness. It's a great plan. And it's so simple and so basic. But as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we can't get away from this, that he's the Christ. 
He's the son of the living God who is our savior. That's what we want to carry to other people. And I think this is what you want to re-talk into your life because I've had this one crisis point when I was 23. Did you see the connection? I told you I got a new lens when I was 23 to look at life. And now after 35 years, and it's been an active lens, it's helped me raise children to be a married person, it's helped me in everything I've had to do, and it's helped me re-see who Jesus is, refocus who Jesus is, recommit, because there were multiple crisis times, there's still gonna be crisis times, time for a decision, and say, yeah, I'm up again, I'm, I'm following you. You're the one, I believe that. That's a crisis, is a time of decision. And whether you've made it previously, I'm hoping you're making that decision for Jesus again. You're seeing again for who he is, the, our Lord and Savior, the Christ, the Son of the living God. An interesting thing, as devoted as I am to the Bible, I would say getting to people to read the Bible without telling them who Jesus is is like putting a pair of glasses on a blind person. It won't work. And actually, I think it's kind of cruel. We want people to know Jesus. This lens did not work for me until I knew Jesus, until I hit that crisis point. The first time I read the Bible, a few months before that, I started in Genesis 1 through 3, and I thought, boy, this would be fun. My friends are talking about the Bible. Let me read it. I got to chapter 3 in Genesis, and I was terrified. I, I really was. This full confession. I don't think I've ever told anybody that. And now I told, what, 200 people? <laughs> I said it's kind of liberating. Um, but it's true. It's true. It wasn't until I saw Jesus for who he is and I said, I'm in, that this word came alive to me. So I would say if you've committed to Jesus, read his word, get to know him better. You've got to listen. Listen to what the Bible is saying about him. Listen to what God's word is saying about him. It will guide your life. It will, um, whatever you're looking at, it will help you in your nearsightedness and it will help you in your farsightedness. But I would also say it's possible that you could be in a group of people like this where there's Jesus followers and there's not Jesus followers. You haven't hit that crisis point. You heard about him, but you haven't met him. And maybe there's that little tug. And whatever's holding you back, I'd say, are you ready? Give it up and say, I'm in. I'll take it. You're the Lord. You're the Savior. I hope that you'll do that. And your eyes will be open to see what God has for you. Two figures in the Bible that I can think of that went through this. One was Nicodemus. Jesus said to him, unless you are born again, you cannot see the king of heaven. He was expert in the scriptures, and he didn't get it. There was another one, much more notorious, by the name of Saul. And he thought he knew the scriptures inside out, and he used them to justify his persecution of Jesus' people. Until one day, he met Jesus on the road, and he made his crisis point. And his eyes were opened, and he even shows us that in Acts, and that's the person who wrote half of the New Testament explaining all the great things that he sees in Jesus Christ as a Jew, 
who knew the scriptures well. And he's expounding on what this great salvation is all about. I just throw that out there to give you some kind of context for reading your Bible. But I will tell you again, if you haven't seen Jesus for who he is, first, you won't see anything in the Bible. I hope that's a helpful word for you today. And um, as we get ready to celebrate communion, you can make this your official amen statement, or you can say, I'm re-upping. I'm definitely in. That's what we do every week. We're confessing the Lord who died for us. We're celebrating his death until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord God and Father, we're so thankful that we can call you Father because of what you've done for us. Your plan is so amazing. Um, I can't get over it. We rehearse it over and over again. It's just your wisdom, your knowledge, your uh, insight into our lives, your kindness, Lord. Your kindness that draws us into your uh, to repentance, to turn to you. We do not deserve your grace, Lord. It's because of your love for us that you sent Jesus. I pray that these few words I shared this morning would be um, by your spirit active in our hearts and help us to know Jesus again, refocus on him so we can share that great love with those around us. And we thank you for it all in his name, amen.